Thanks to Cryo Malt, the grain of truth in every beer. This is the conversation behind every beer. I'm Matt Kirkegaard. This week we feature a conversation with Tom Shellhammer, Norwester Professor of Fermentation Science at Oregon State University and an internationally recognised expert in hops chemistry. Professor Shellhammer was in the country recently and has been doing the rounds, including speaking at a series of events for the Independent Brewers Association, and we caught up with him before his Brisbane presentation. I could be wrong, but I can't picture too many brewers I know as being the sort who sat in the front row of their high school chemistry classes, hanging on every word of their teacher. Yet Tom had a room full of brewers listening intently and studiously taking notes. He's a fascinating presenter on hops and an incredibly engaging speaker, and I hope this conversation captures even a little bit of that. I hope you enjoy it. Professor Tom Shellhammer, welcome to Australia and welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thank you. Mate, it's been a bit of a whirlwind for you. You've uh, been in Tasmania, you're now in, you were in Melbourne last night, you're in Brisbane and you're off to Sydney. There's been a yeah. few conversations. This is quite, uh, quite a tour of, of Australia, my first time in Australia. It's been great uh, having a week and a half in Tasmania and kind of getting to see the agricultural side of Australia and um, hops, wine, cider, oysters. That yeah, was great. And then now to end on the mainland with this whirlwind trip through Melbourne. Will you Brisbane, get any time off to uh, for, for holiday, or you just uh... yeah, some fun fun time on the front end of this trip. Yeah, so my wife was with me. Um, uh, we arrived on Easter and uh, spent the first few days having fun, and then uh, and then we then we kind of transitioned into more work. I mean, this is work, but this is like fun kind of work, right? So then she she left on last weekend, and then I just like really dig into meeting brewers and visiting. Having beers, and, and you, you count yourself as very lucky when you get to do this oh, um, and you call it. it work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I was down at the uni this afternoon with Glenn Fox, and we were taking the river taxi, the, the city cat, yep. the city cat up the river. I'm like, oh man, what a gorgeous city it Brisbane is. is. We, 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 we're very lucky, and this is winter, which I imagine in uh, Oregon, where you're from. No, this is not winter in Oregon. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, it's cool climate there. It's, uh, so, so I was. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed by the beauty of the city. And the friendliness of the people, and um, and then yeah, it's work, right? I'm making contacts and uh, talking about science and talking about beer, and so it's like yeah, I'm, I'm a lucky guy. Oh, absolutely. Now I know you've already been on a couple of podcasts already and spoken. A, a, so I, I, I find myself in that situation of feeling a little bit like Liz Taylor's seventh husband um, on his <laughs> wedding night. I, I know what's expected, but I'd still like to try and find a way to make it feel different. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but we will cover some of the ground you've covered uh, with, with other people. You are the uh, professor of fermentation science at Oregon State University. You bet, exactly. So I'm a professor in the Department of Food Science and Technology there. Uh, I am the Norwester Endowed Professor of Fermentation Science. The Norwester title comes from a brewery. It was one of the first breweries in the U.S. to go public. So it was a craft brewery back in the 90s. Wow, um, okay. Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting piece of history there. So it was in Portland, Oregon. Um, and the, um, the fellow who started it, Jim Bruneau, uh, he's still around. He, he's not doing brewing, but he's the owner of the Willamette Valley Vineyards in uh, in Oregon. They do quite well. And he, in the, in the early 90s, he saw that there was a dearth of education in both wine and beer in the Pacific Northwest. And what he did is when he took the Northwestern Brewery Public, he gave some of that stock to the university and had the state match it with some funds and created an endowment 
to support teaching and research in fermentation science, really in, in beer. I mean, it's, it's broadly fermentation science, but it stems from a, a brewery um, business. And so I'm the current holder of that endowment, and it allows me to, to you know, do research and, and uh, support students and, and support the activities at OSU. Now, how did, how did you come to find your way, obviously from a science background, but did you have a, a high school or a college teacher yourself no, I who was not, steered you into, no, into, into no, something no. that so took the, you into beer? The, the wine thing, I just kind of stumbled into it. So I, I grew up in San Jose, California. Um, I'm a fifth generation Californian. My father went to school at UC Davis, and, uh, and he had grown up in, in Woodland, which is just like 10 miles away from Davis. And we would go back to Davis every now and then. They have a thing called Picnic Day. And so I did that, you know, growing up, and ah, this campus feels comfortable. And, and as I looked for colleges when I was 18, that was one that kind of bubbled up to the top. And so I went to school at Davis, not really knowing what I wanted to do, but wanting to find something that would blend this, the, the interest that I had in science. My father was a, a scientist, a field biologist, did fire ecology research in, in, in the giant sequoias. I spent my summers living up in the, in the Kings Canyon National Park, which is pretty cool. And my mom was an art historian. And so I'm like, okay, I had kind of a little bit of a, an artistic bent, uh, and I'm looking for something to kind of combine those two. And I'm at Davis, and I, I initially started in on landscape architecture and then kind of found my way out of that just because it was, didn't have the passion that all the landscape architects said. I was 18, right? I'm just kind of exploring. And I found myself in a wine class at Davis, and I started thinking about, hey, this, is, this actually kind of fits this idea of trying to pursue something that, that has science but has an artistic bent to it. And so, yeah, I studied fermentation science. Then it was really focused on enology, but I took brewing courses as well. I took my brewing professor was Michael Lewis, and this was back in the you know mid '80s, and um, and didn't really see myself becoming a brewer. Thinking maybe I'd be a winemaker. Ended up that that winemaking again. Back to this passion thing when I'm a, you know a young teenager. Um, it was interesting, but not enough to really like drive me. So I found myself going into food science. Um, into food engineering, and um, and then pursuing a a, um, a a career in in the academy. I had worked for a while for General Mills, a food company in Minneapolis, and so I got my feet wet working uh, as a food scientist. I spent summers doing crush jobs, like pressing grapes for Domaine Chandon, or working crushes with uh, with Trefethen family vineyards. And so I had some manufacturing experience and had some food experience, and I think my father's work. As a professor, there was just something like kind of gnawing at me. I didn't leave high school wanting to be a, an academic. I was just, I mean, science was interesting, but not that interesting. So I pursued a graduate degree in food engineering and, and, and then found myself working for Ohio State University as a food engineer. Okay. Yeah. It, 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 because it's funny that you say that. I've noticed that a lot of homebrewers and a lot of uh, homebrewers who go pro come from a computer science background or an engineering background, background or maybe a biochemistry background exactly and, and we see this at, at at Oregon State University a lot we people a good portion of our of our undergraduate population are post-baccalaureate students who have started a career somewhere and then decide you know what this is really not what I want to do I've fallen in love with with making beer or making wine and want to pursue that so they come to OSU with already with a degree in biochemistry or chemical engineering or or in some cases, an entirely different uh, field like um, like psychology. In fact, I have a graduate student right now in my lab who went that route and then realized, you know, maybe this is not 
what he wanted to do. And he, it's, a, it's a long route to go from psych back you know, into this, the sciences, natural sciences and chemical sciences. But he did it, and he's interested in you know, being a brewer or at least studying brewing. So, so anyway, to your point, a lot of people that are in the industry don't start out as 18-year-olds or 14-year-olds fascinated with beer. But it was also coming from a, a very technical science background. For example, uh, if you write computer code, if you don't do the basics, it doesn't work. Yeah. But even once you've got that, there is good computer code and there's, there's elegant computer yep, code. Yep. Um, and it's exactly. a bit the same with brewing. You, you, if you don't follow the basic steps, it just doesn't turn out well. Right. But then there's an elegance to following the science at yeah, the same so time. the difference between making beer and making really good beer. Mm. Yeah. And, and there's an art to it. And there, there, there's, there's a, 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 you know, you can create art with uh, making something as simple as a, a lovely lager. Yeah, one of the lectures that I was giving up in Launceston this weekend uh, was around quality. And, and one of the things that I think about from a quality perspective is like how, how well-crafted from like the artistic part, and I, I, I refer to that as balance, right? Um, and then how, um, you know, how consistent is it? And then also how defective is it, right? So if, if, a, if a beer is, is free of de- defects and really consistent, it can still be ho-hum beer, right? It's just not built well. And vice versa, you could have beers that are just delicious, but then the next time you have them, they're they they fail to impress and so that's you know a lack of a consistency so i think there clearly is an artistic element of being able to put together raw materials and make something that is delicious and and that is one of the prime differences between beer and wine to to my way of thinking is that wine is made on the the annual harvest you you make it once a year um, and then you come back next year and start again with potentially a different product whereas beer you make potentially 365 days of the year and so there's almost an expected consistency from something that you make daily as opposed to annually totally i think that you, you, that's a great summary of those two different disciplines i think wine is a, a wonderful expression of of place and uh certainly a really strong connection to agriculture um i, I feel like and i believe that wine is made in the vineyard um and, and in fact my, you know, my first degree was in winemaking um I'm a home winemaker, and it's just like buy good fruit and get out of the way, right? Let the let the fruit do what it's going to do. And I know my winemaking friends may like cringe a little bit because I mean there are some levers you can pull a little bit, but nothing like in brewing. With brewing, it's all about pulling the levers, right? Making and, and sure you start with an idea of what you want to finish with, as opposed to take it where it wants where to it go. Wants to go on its own, exactly. And there's a, a little bit of crossover in that with you know wild beers that are spontaneously fermented and aged, and they, those kind of move a little bit on their own. But by and large, the brewer is about trying to, to create consistency, understanding the raw material differences and, and the properties that they have, and turning the right knobs or pulling the right levers to achieve a consistent beer. One of your, talking of uh, quality, and one of your areas of research has been on this idea of hop creep, where the, the hops can create um, enzymes, the, the hops have enzymes that can create um, uh, fermentable sugars post-packaging that can lead to issues in in the can. But is that the only issue that um, brewers are facing around re-fermentation in, in the can? No, no, not really. It's it, the I think there's a number of areas that brewers bump into, or at least the headaches that are created by hop creep that, that brewers interact with or bump into. And one is a, a really like a consumer safety 
issue when you've got re-fermentation in a sealed package. And that might happen if unexpectedly if the hops are creating enzymes that break down residual non-fermentable dextrins. And if the package is, particularly if the package is, um, or the beer is bottle conditioned, now you've got a lot of yeast and that, that those non-fermentables that are now fermentable start re-fermenting in the package and you start getting package overpressures. This is the, the first time we bumped into hop creep was on, on this very instance where a brewery named Allagash in Portland, Maine, that they make a lot of um, bottle-conditioned beers, not very many dry hop beers. They made a dry-hopped um, bottle-conditioned beer, saw package overpressures like crazy, and then were wondering what was going on and played with it a little bit and then gave us a call and said, hey, can you work with this on this? But that's, that, that was driven by like a consumer safety issue, not wanting to have glass bottles exploding. But that same phenomenon of this, this re-fermentation can happen in the cellar and before the beer is packaged, and actually, if it's going to happen, that's where you would like to have it happen, is in the brewery, not in the package. And it creates then inconsistencies, right? So if, if, if it's not consistent, then, then beers attenuate to different levels depending upon the activity of these enzymes or the, or the amount of enzymes that are used. And there's actually a secondary process that not all brewers, but many breweries bump into, which is um, a diacetyl spike that comes that's associated with dry hopping, which I believe is linked somehow to this to this um, re-fermentation. I think people have different ideas. People have come to me with different ideas of what they think is going on. But yep. the diacetyl spike then creates just a delay in the beer moving through the brewery, and that's just a logistics headache for the brewer. And, and so what are, what are the answers from a brewer's point of view? Is it purely them looking after their procedures in the brew house, or do they have to consider this isn't a beer that I should be ser- selling beyond my venue or yeah so they think there's it depends upon the the kind of beer if we're just going to talk about just not dry hot beers but just beer in general in general yeah yeah if if there are uh fermentables added to beer or enzymes that will create new fermentables then brewers should understand that and and uh and prepare for that not um and there's been plenty of breweries that have had huge recalls because of Packages blowing up, um, and principally be around this, the consumer safety issue, and uh, they can put breweries under uh, financially. Yeah. So, it's if if you're going to put a fermentable in a um, in a beer, either pasteurize it so it doesn't re-ferment, um, or let it re-ferment before you package the beer, and um, yeah, ensure that that the beer is stable post when it, after it leaves the brewery. Yep. And quite apart from the quality side of things, your research uh, also goes into, uh, sorry, the, the, the negative quality issues. Your research also goes into the positive qualities. And uh, you, you look very much about how the, the, the flavors that come from hops um, work with the beer. Yeah. A big part of what we're doing now in the last, say, last eight years or so has been around flavor and trying to understand what drives flavor. In Which hoppy, is a bit of a novelty flavor. for beer. Like if you go back 30 years, flavor wasn't one of the... Uh... No, particularly in hops, right? So, and, and that's what we're finding is that we're doing research on kilning, on hop maturity, uh, hop harvest maturity, um, a number of things. And when you look back in the research, it's all was driven around alpha acid, like looking at quality of alpha acid, hop storage index, that's an alpha acid measurement, um, alpha acid preservation, with almost complete disregard for hop aroma. And it's in, in part because the beers at the time, if you turn the clock back 30 years or 50 years, 
at least in the U.S., they were all you know, regional lager breweries making pale yellow beer, and hops were really a small component. Really, They were there principally for um, hop bitterness. In some cases, a little bit of aroma, but really hop bitterness. So, And varieties like Cascade weren't around. Certainly varieties like Citro, Mosaic, uh, Galaxy, these weren't around. Uh, if anything, if they were around, they are probably, on a, on a breeder's table, they probably got you know, tossed to the bin because they just did not work. For There's a great story about Galaxy that it was sent out and they, they got all this negative feedback from brewers who, I, I can't remember what the term is, but it was essentially flavor positive and we don't want that in our beers. In our beer, exactly, <laughs> right, because we're trying to make a very neutral yeah. flavored beer. So, so yeah, who knows how many varieties, like like galaxies of their era might have been developed in the 30s and 40s and 50s, right, that we'll never know. That would, and they only make them once and then they disappear. Exactly. So some of the work that we're doing is looking at, not really revisiting, but walking back around the path of like hop kilning, hop maturity, yep. hop oil. How do these things influence the quality of aroma hops, quality of hops like Cascade or Centennial or Chinook or you know, who knows, maybe even uh, we'll do some work on Galaxy. But it's like, does kilning influence uh, hop aroma? Does um, a big project we were working on for several years was like hop oil. Like, how do you gauge hop aroma in beer? Is it hop oil? Uh, and does it make sense? Like, if you're going to look at from lot to lot of different Cascade um, samples that you might have from, from different farms, if you're trying to create a dry hop Cascade beer, should you be dosing Cascade based upon the oil content? I'd, I'd heard some brewers say, yeah, that's our approach. So that's a, a decent, like, question to ask. Does hop oil correlate with hop aroma? Mm-hmm. And after several years of work, we, I would say, no, it doesn't really correlate with aroma okay there's a big portion of of hop oil that is really not flavor active so I mean, it's it's active like mercine has aroma but there's very little mercine in beer because it just doesn't want to be in beer okay and so hop oil might have you know 80 85 percent of the oil composition made up of four components mercine humulene caryophylline and maybe some farnesine depending upon the hop and those four compounds are really, one, they're not very water-soluble. And even if at the levels that they might be soluble, they're not that flavor-potent relative to other things that are in, in, in oil. So if you think of that, those parts as kind of like the filler in, in oil, mm-hmm. then, then it's like, oh, okay, you can kind of see that. Okay, hop oil could move around, and it's, the, it's these small, smaller fraction parts of the hop oil that are more important. So does that give, and, and it's, um, and I'm trying to, think of the pronunciation geraniol mm-hmm. um, is one of the ones that's the... Right, so this, this three-year study we did looking at uh, Cascade and Centennial and Chinook. Uh, with Cascade, we found that, uh, that geraniol is actually a better predictor of hop aroma intensity of Cascade in beer. It's not, it's not, I'm not saying that geraniol is what defines hot, um, Cascade aroma because it's much more complex than that. But if you're looking for a marker in hops to gauge the potential potency of that geraniol is a better bet than total oil right within cascade and for for centennial beta pinene is a better um, marker for gauging the potential potency when i talk about potency I mean like the aromatic intensity of a of a centennial hop sample than total oil which okay. is like kind of like a little bit you know head scratching um, <laughs> but 
Yeah, I mean, my advice is if you if you don't have um, centennial, I mean, if you don't have beta pinene or geranial numbers, just dry hop based upon a fixed mass of hops. You you have more consistency than trying to chase oil. But you won't have that screaming headline of we've used X kilos. That, well, yeah, exactly. Like, what you, you can you can do that. You can like when when we were um, talking last night in, in Melbourne, man, there are some people that are dry hopping it like. Upwards of 30 grams per liter of hops. It's crazy. It's like almost like a malt bill, right? It's, like, it's a huge, huge amount of, of hops. But that will ultimately make craft beer more efficient if we understand these things, I would have thought, and uh, hopefully Ex- bring... Exactly, right? So that's another part we're looking at is efficiency and, and inefficiencies of dry hopping. I've got a student in the lab, a guy named Dean Hauser, who's just getting ready to graduate uh, in a few weeks. And he's been studying the inefficiency of dry hopping uh, by tracking things like Geranial. Geranial in hops, how much geranial is left behind in beer, how much oil is in hops, how much uh, oil is left in the spent material. And we find that, that dry hopping in our pilot scale static system is really inefficient. Like at best, we're getting like a 70% extraction. At worst, we're getting like a, a 30% extraction. Now, granted, we're not doing research to try to really push um, the extraction. We're trying to just measure it you know, from a baseline perspective. And it's not dry hopping is a very inefficient way of getting aroma into beer. It sounds like it's an exciting time to be a hop researcher. Um, we're, we're, with the focus, hops are the rock star of brewing at the moment. Yeah, it, it's it, pure serendipity, right? I, I, um, I just feel lucky. I'm working on hops. Uh, I find hops fascinating. I find the aromas really interesting. And so do consumers and brewers. And um, my career at Oregon State, which started in 2001, has coincided with a, you know, a, a big run-up in the number of breweries in the United States and consumers are enamored with hoppy beers for better or for worse. And so brewers are interested in it. And so it's, it's kind of a neat, a neat place to be where the work I'm doing, people are really receptive of it. And it's also dynamic. People talk about it. So it's, you know, the ideas are not hard to come by because like the hop creep thing, people come to me like, Hey, can you, can you help us figure this out? Sure, it's a great thing to work on. I, I know your background is in hops, not in marketing. But do you have a do, do you have a, an opinion about why hops have found their moment in brewing? Uh, I, I don't. I don't have a, a, a hard, you know, like thing I can point to. Um, but there certainly is something about, particularly um, American and also Southern Hemisphere hops. These fruity, citrusy, passion fruity, tropical, floral aromas are. Consumers love those kind of aromas. I've spent a long time thinking about it, and I guess they're easy to get. Like you don't have to have a fantastic palate, but those are flavors right. that leap out at you, and you recognize them, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think I, I, I also imagine that there is an element of complexity to it. It's not just like lemon lime or grapefruit, right? There's there's more to it. So it, there is more depth in the aroma than just a top note. But yeah, it's a good question. I, I haven't like. I don't have a, a firm idea as to why hops are, are so uh, people are so enamored with it. I know the the, guy, the barley guys and the malt guys are like, "Hey, malt is the next hops. This is the." <laughs> I'm like, "Yeah, go get it." But but you know when I run into people, people are excited about barley and malt, but not to the same degree they are about hops. And it's and I'm, that's just you know whatever a statement of fact. Sour is coming out close second at the moment. I, I think again I would because agree. it's quite obvious. Yeah, sour beers. Um, I would I would say that there's more passion around sour beers 
than they would say around malty beers. Yeah. Right. So I see that in the in the craft brew community in Oregon. We have some really delicious sour beers, and then yeah. and the sour beers, you know, kind of takes you into spaces that you didn't think you would go with with beer. It kind of almost moves you into cider and and wine realms with the yeah. acidity and the fruitiness and and the complexity and depth of those beers. And and they're not subtle. Um, so so everyone yeah, exactly well and particularly some of the American sour beers you know the Americans are not known for subtlety because I've seen some beers that have really high titratable acidities that they almost like hurt your mouth they're so mouth puckering those are a bit much for me but I think that's kind of like you know the double IPA of the the turn of the century where Absolutely. how much bitterness can you get into this I'm a balanced man myself yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so with you know I guess it's um, I, I, I trace the hop interest back to probably 1980 when Sierra Nevada really popularised what we now know as the American Pale Ale um, using the Cascade um, hops. Um, To some extent, are we playing a catch-up with with our hop research now? Because before then it was about bitterness and alpha acids, and now we really have to fine-tune our understanding of what it is about the other elements of... Yeah, I think... I think there's like two sides of this coin. One one side of the coin is that uh, the targets for breeding and for quality just got bigger, right? Up until like let's just use the mid '80s, the targets for breeders were yield, uh, disease resistance, which those are still the primary targets, and alpha acid content, right? They yeah. was kind of chasing alpha. There was some work being done back in the '50s and '60s, maybe even the '70s, where we're looking for. American replacements of German varieties because we had German brewers and many of the beers were German-inspired, you know, American lager beer. But uh, with craft brewing taking off and the, and the interest in these intensely flavored aromatic hops, then that sort of expands the playing field, which on one hand is really good because it provides like, there's more options. But when I talk to the breeders, it's, it's also uh, a little bit difficult because now you don't just have one or two targets to chase you've got like what targets do you chase yep. you know and that's part of what the research we're doing is trying to help them by giving them targets like geranium may be a compound that you want to chase yeah um total oil uh, maybe but maybe not from you know it's hard when you compare one variety to another that's a different story but within a, a, an individual variety that this oil thing isn't is an important um and then from a quality perspective how do you define like from a chemistry perspective the quality of aromatic hops and uh, you can certainly analyze all the different oils but does that still give you a measure of quality around that will there always be a you know that that, that untouchable you know you feel it um, without being able to put a figure to it yeah, um, I think I think the there's tangible yeah I think there there will always be the need for a sensory element in the quality evaluation of raw materials and finished beer we can't I think we'll, I don't think we'll ever get to the point where it's just chemistry i think about like just think of other systems like cars or whatever you can you can parameterize it to the nth degree in terms of performance and and efficiencies and whatnot but but beauty and drivability of like a car has to something you have to experience and i think the same thing with beers you can you can put some parameters in terms of alcohol and alcohol to sweetness ratios or or bitterness and even the aromatic profile but the the aggregation and assimilation of those, and then your perception of those through your senses is really like the one of the key defining things around quality. And, and without it, um, you don't you miss something. Like, and that's one reason why my my lab almost all my research 
has a sensory element to it in addition to the chemistry because without the sensory, you're just what you are looking at is just those analytes that you're looking at. It's like those science fiction movies where they go to a machine, press a button, and a pill comes out that's got all the nutrients they need. The food replicator, right? It's in Star yeah. Trek, right? Mm-hmm. But, but it takes away that hedonistic element. And the, the, the reason we eat well, I guess drink... So the, the, the food replicator might be offering more of the hedonistic stuff. But yeah, if you have just the nutrition pill, then it's just... Yeah, and, and it's boring. We eat and drink for the pleasure it gives us, which yeah. is an important part of what we do. Yeah, exactly. So I think you know, being on a a solo mission to like Mars or the Moon, eating cold food pellets would be the most like difficult thing, right? You have no social interaction, and you've got no pleasure from from food. But but you can't take away the psychological element of it. And, you know, there's all of those fascinating studies about um, telling somebody about the cost of something and they actually enjoy it more. Right, your expectations, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. and and the color of the plate. And uh, Heston Blumenthal, who can give you ice cream but play crunching sounds, and it changes your perception of it. And and Uh you can never completely get away from that psychological element of, of, of perception. Exactly. And I think um, I, I was, when I was at Ohio State, I was involved in a, a research group uh, that was a, a federal-funded combat ration um, thing. Interesting, right? Uh, so like yeah. looking for new technologies for combat rations. And combat rations can work their way into humanitarian aid, these kind of things. But one of the things that the folks within inside the, the Army were adamant was that every certain number of meals, if, even if people were out in the middle of the field, they would have a hot meal. Yep. Right, because the the hot meal, the psychological aspect of that, and then and then also having to have a diversity of of flavors of of meal choices, helps keep people happy and inspired. Because uh, if you give them cold food, same thing over and over again, pretty soon, you know that you, you've lost a part of your being. And, and I guess all of this is going back to that intangible element that you'll never be able to put on a spectrograph, or you know, when you sort of yeah, them. I. I, I who knows? Maybe a computer scientist could tell me that you know there's some sort of AI te- technology this that could really get at it. But I'm 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 doubting that's the case. I think there will always need to be the the sensory human element of of sensing beer in order to really assess quality. At, at risk of meandering off uh, your area of expertise, um, where do you fall into the air, to, to the idea that hops do or don't have terroir? You know, does a, uh, you know, a a hop from Yakima will it automatically taste different from a hop from Tasmania? That's a really good question, it's, and it's one that we're just beginning to dig into this year. Uh, we're working on a project with a hop farmer in Oregon, um, Coleman Ag, and uh, they're they're a very large hop farmer. And the neat thing about that is they've got um, hop farms in different parts, the different geographic parts of Oregon, mm. and we're trying to probe that very question, which is. Is there a, a, a terroir or a regional identity to hops? That is, are hops grown in one part of Oregon different than hops grown in another part of Oregon? Uh, same thing. You could extend that to Washington, Oregon, to Oregon and Tasmania. And I'm excited to see where that goes. And they're convinced that there is an effect because they, they say that brewers routinely come back, same brewers, year after year, routinely pick certain varieties from certain parts of the farm and not the other part of the farm. And I've heard that we don't do that here, but a brewer on the weekend was talking to me about block, um, you know, dividing up the blocks. And right. you can actually say, this is what we want. We want the hops. We want the cascade from that, that particular block. block. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I, I tend to believe them that there is a there there. So what we're going to try to do is is 
test it scientifically, um, put some numbers on it, seek and some statistics. Is there really a there there? And if there is, then start um, trying to understand why there is a there there. It gets pretty complicated in a hurry. So you've got like soil factors to look at. You've got um, climate factors. You've got harvest maturity. Uh, I was talking with the guys at uh, Hot Products Australia on Monday, no, Tuesday uh, afternoon. And one of the things they were talking about was like, like virus load. So if they have uh, a sample of Cascade that's virus infected and one that's not infected, they see big differences in alpha acid, big differences in oil content, and big differences in aroma. And that's not just like um, disease pressure. It's like, you know, one, one plant is, or one field is completely infected with virus versus one that's not. And so that's, it's, there's going to be many layers to this onion in order to, to get at the, the terroir thing. And, and that's something that you're looking at uh, from, from what you're saying. So yeah. do, do you think we'll ever be able to get an answer to the fact to, well, this block, the, the, the hops in this block that were picked on the first day of harvest are vastly different to the hops in this block that were picked on the fourth day of harvest, yeah. for example? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think what we, we already know is that, like, in that, let's just pick one block. The hops picked early and the hops picked late have different aromas. Okay. So we know that. For, so we so know that. For we know fact, that. For okay. Fact. And uh, and so that's that potentially complicates the story, right? So it's, you have to, in order to do an apples to apples comparison, you need to be at the same level of maturity, right? So, um, but I do think that there that we'll see differences um, expressed by the plant mm-hmm. where it's grown. And uh, I guess then the next indefinable is how much of that flows through to the finished beer because there are so many variables between the the, the harvest and the exactly. uh, brewery right that's a really good question is that the the initial work that we've done seems to point that there are some def- differences in chemistry and we've done some sensory evaluation we just haven't done the analysis on them and we're going to do that soon but ultimately we need to brew the beer with these and get brewers to tell us oh yeah we can tell a difference in the finished beer because you know if you can't tell a difference in the finished beer then it's sort of like, I don't know, showing off, I guess, on the front yeah. end. You know, if the hops themselves smell different, great. But if the beers that are made from those don't smell different or taste different, then, okay, then what's the point? Now, the the, the one last thing, and I know that because you're about to present to the uh, Independent Brewers Association, the, the, the Queensland Brewers, just looking at the issue of hop breeding, and we, we do have a couple of uh, large proprietary brewers um, operating internationally and they've yep. made they, they've been very successful with their hop breeding program really successful mm-hmm. um, and they make uh, some great hops they're, they're making some yeah, great I mean, hops mosaic simcoe citra these are you know awesome hops and they're galaxy in australia galaxy in australia exactly yeah so and the brewers love them citra is the now the number one hop grown in in the u.s so it's like okay wow but there is also renewed interest because they once they are proprietary they are locked in yeah the, the, mm-hmm. there is growing awareness in the u.s particularly um to make sure that there is always a open source for want of a better word or public, exactly. a public development program yep. the, the u.s brewing industry is is interested in having a vibrant and healthy public breeding program the hop research council which is a, a group of brewers hop growers and hop dealers uh are are working on ensuring that there is a um a vibrant public breeding effort um they've been working with the federal government to increase funding to the usda the usda is the the the, the group in the u.s that promotes and supports agriculture and and the the varieties like Cascade Willamette that came out of the USDA public breeding program um, 
I mean, that we can we can thank the USDA for those. And so we're trying to get more money into the USA or from the USDA into hot breeding, and expand um, the breeding into Washington State. Uh, Does so. a dividend go back to the USDA, for example? Because I guess that, that that's no, that's the, the interesting thing. In the US, we don't have like a, a, a dividend system, right? So the, uh, when a, a public variety is released, there isn't like a, a checkoff that goes back. And no one ever celebrates and says, hey, government, you did really, really they well. Will. Exactly. Now, a lot of the varieties... I don't mind paying my taxes this year because you created Cascade Hops. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so the USDA efforts since its inception has been around germplasm development, uh, that is disease-resistant, high-yield. And so they've actually created a germplasm base that a lot of public and private breeding has come off of. Um, so you know, the private breeders could thank in part some of these, these efforts that were, that were done earlier. But back to your point, that, yeah, the industry is interested, the U.S. industry certainly is interested in having a, a healthy public breeding program. And, and, and what does that lead, what, what does having a public um, research program add to, to, to the industry uh, that, that uh, maybe some of the proprietary hop growers uh, don't have? Well, I think from like a, just a business perspective, and I'm thinking back to my days when I was working as a food scientist at General Mills, like, um, as a food company, we never wanted to have a sole source pro, um, supplier of a particular ingredient, right? And so when the industry moves to 100% private, then, then you're, you're kind of working your way into that into that corner. So the public breeding provides a like a healthy counterpoint to that, um, and so it, it offers the industry and hop growers um, flexibility and and the ability to not to be um, be owned or controlled. I don't know enough about uh, plant biology um, to, to even know whether this is a question worth asking, but I know that, for example, bananas. Um, they are genetically indistinguishable. One plant is, and so a virus can wipe out the entire banana crop. Is hops subject to that sort of yeah. Um, risk? Yeah. So hops, hops um, uh, are propagated asexually um, when the when hops are are bred. Uh, very much like, let's say, like apples, the the seedlings are all genetically different. You can't take seeds from a a uh, fertilized hop plant, plant it, and expect to get the same the same hop um, growing. So, like all of Cascade is propagated from, at one point, the original plant, right? So you have the the, the, the Eve no, plant, or right? The, exactly the Eve plant, right? That's sitting, you know, in the ground somewhere in in, in the fields in in Corvallis. Not that every propagation has to come off of that, but th- some initial stuff was propagated off of that, and then these other plantings are propagated off of those. And so they're all genetic, genetically identical. And that presents some interesting challenges from a disease susceptibility. So part of the breeding effort is to try to breed in genetic diversity into new varieties so that if one variety becomes suddenly susceptible to a, a new fungal disease, it doesn't take out, or whatever kind of disease, it doesn't take out the entire industry. But... Um, if a new disease arises uh, that Cascade can't fight, um, or if, let's say, fungal diseases mutate, then, yeah, then the whole entire variety is threatened because, like, one field of, of Cascade is genetically identical to another field of Cascade. Is it something that we should be concerned about, or is it, you know, on, on the scale of risk, it's fairly low? I think it's medium risk. I think the, the risk is, um, is with growers who are excited to hop into the hop business and use uh, rootstock or, or material that has not been identified as being clean, right? So is it virus-free? 
Um, is it the, actually the variety that you think you're planting? So there is some, I think there's some concern around that. And, and um, I think there's that the Australians, rightly so, are concerned about, you know, germplasm coming into, an infected germplasm coming into this country because you don't have the same disease issues that we have in North America. And so you want to, like, keep that clean. And uh, one last question before I let you go. What next for hops? What, what do you think? What are the exciting innovations that you're aware of uh, that, that are coming through either in the breeding program or just in the research? Yeah, so the, the breeding program, it's, it's hard to say, like, where breeders are going to go. I think what they're looking for is something exciting and new and interesting. Something that people go, ooh, you know, that makes people's eyes light up. And I don't know, it's hard to like read the crystal ball where in the flavor spectrum that will be. Uh, I think there's going to be exciting things in terms of hot products that provide greater efficiencies. So I think that it's it's only natural. Like, it's not sustainable for brewers to be using 15, 20, 30 grams of hops per liter of beer right that, that's that's so there's going to be some innovations that arise that allow brewers to have greater utilization which means they can use less material which i think is good i mean you could say okay the hop grower wants to sell more material yeah to a degree i mean at some point um it's just like wasteful right to be using hops like that so so inefficiently so i think there's going to be some interesting things there wonderful well professor tom shellhammer thank you very much for giving a bit of time for this conversation thank about you, beer and uh, all the best tonight and enjoy the rest of your stay in australia yep look forward to doing this again in the future and that was tom shellhammer and we would like to thank our sponsors, including Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging, for making this show possible. Even if you have an established label supplier, have a chat with Rallings Labels Stickers and Packaging and see how their flexibility can make things easier for your brewery. Call Rallings on 1300 852 235. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show, either a one-off or monthly donation, just to cover the costs of us producing it, you can review us on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service and help other people to find the show. Or you can email us at producer at to share your thoughts. All correspondents will receive a Brews News bottle opener and go into the draw to win a mixed six-pack. Thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel who sponsor our Letter of the Week.